Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Speaker Discovery Series on the AFP podcast stream. I'm Laura Champion, and I'm the host of the event you're about to listen to, as well as the founder of the Speaker Discovery Series. The Speaker Discovery Series was created to generate a pathway for people who want to speak at large fundraising conferences, but who haven't gotten the experience yet. They get up on stage and they tell a story that is somehow related to fundraising and the theme of the event. The theme of this event was Dilemma, so as you can imagine, the stories get pretty interesting. You will hear at the beginning of this episode a little bit of technical difficulty. The recorder wasn't turned on as I began to intro, but everything you need to know is in the recording. I really hope that you'll join us for an upcoming event in Toronto or start your own speaker discovery series if you're listening from afar. We are more than happy to share the materials, advice, and even come and help. The next one that will be held in Toronto will be in September or October of 2018. While we don't have a date nailed down yet, we do have a theme, and that theme is love. So please, think of your love stories and apply to be part of the next speaker discovery series. It's a night that you won't forget, and a night that really does help your career and make friends, and I can't tell you the difference it has made in the lives of people who've participated. I'm so grateful that you're listening, and I really hope you'll enjoy a night of dilemmas. So they have proof that they know what they're doing. We've had amazing success uh, with the past two events of launching new speakers past to excellence. Uh, Alexis is in the audience today from season one. Uh, Alexis will be, <laughs> season one. Uh, and Alexis will be speaking at Congress this year. So, it really works, everybody. Um, uh, thank you to our judges. So our judges this evening are Denny Young, Juniper Lociento, and Andrea Orr. Um, and they're gonna be watching and giving feedback, and in fact, they are so generous with their time on this that they always offer to do follow-up phone calls with speakers who are interested in case there's something unclear in their feedback or to give additional tips. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you for being here. Um, you will occasionally hear me speak to Denny from the stage. Uh, I can't always see him. There's more daylight than last time. Um, but we strive to give the judges enough time between speakers, so I tell ridiculous filler stories, and I have some for you tonight. <laughs> Um, so tonight's theme, as I mentioned, is dilemma, and we know as fundraisers that we're faced with difficult circumstances and choices very frequently, basically every day. Um, dilemmas sneak up on you, and how you handle them says a lot about who you are. Tonight, we'll hear from seven amazing speakers who will touch on everything from the professional to the absolutely personal. And since some of these stories will be so personal, please be reminded that this is a storytelling show. So I encourage you to be a warm, welcoming, open audience throughout the night. Part of that supportive mentality is tweeting support uh, and tweeting about the event and telling your friends how much you loved it. Uh, our hashtag tonight is AFPSDS. That's AFPSDS. Um, so please uh, tweet and tell your friends. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier, we are recording tonight's show, so you as a live audience are being taped right now, uh, and we've put it out on the AFP podcast stream, so there is one podcast out right now, and that is season two of SDS. Uh, you can find it in Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, so please do uh, listen to it. That theme was whoops, and there's some good stories in there, some from me, um, but that's it. So we have seven great speakers to get to. Uh, but what we usually do and what we'll be doing this evening is we like to do a little icebreaker story from one of our committee members. So this evening, that icebreaker story will be done by um, my dear, dear friend, Samantha Barr. Samantha is the manager of alumni relations and advancement campaigns at the University of Toronto Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education. I'll let you take that all in. She's going to start us off tonight <laughs> with a story that what she was initially reluctant to share, but that some is something I think we'll all connect with. So welcome, Samantha. Thanks, Laura. I was really worried there for a second that you were going to say something to make me cry. I have tissues on standby in my bag, because I know there's another speaker who's totally going to make me cry later on. 
Um, it's funny to be up here. Uh, the last time I was on this stage, I was winning a costume contest. I came here for my 30th birthday, and it was a 90s dance party, so I dressed up in clothes that I'd had since I was 11 um, in butterfly clips, and I won $100. So I'm hoping that I can have similar success up here tonight. So this is a tale about two cities and my choice about whether or not to make a drastic change in my fundraising career. When people find out that my partner doesn't live in Toronto, I have to brace myself for the inevitable, very well-intentioned questions and prepare my responses. No, he doesn't live in Toronto. Yes, he lives in Kitchener. No, not for school, he lives there. No, it's not that hard. I mean, I see him on the weekends. No, I don't think I'll, he'll move here anytime soon. So my partner, Peter, lives and works in Kitchener. And because of our careers, we've lived apart for our entire six-year relationship. He works in radio, and I work in fundraising. For Peter, living and working in Kitchener is how he got a job in radio in the first place. It's just a lot easier for him to get a job in a smaller market, which, unfortunately, is the opposite for me. For me, living and working in Toronto means that I have better job prospects because there are simply more jobs in more charitable organizations. And as a huge bonus, I get to be connected to a great group of fundraisers like AFP Toronto. It's as good for me here as it is for him there. So last year, Peter was offered an amazing apartment. And it was a little bit out of his price range, so he called me up to talk about it. So even though we're in a long-distance relationship, we talk on the phone a few times a year. So I knew it was something important. He asked me to move to Kitchener and live in this fantastic apartment with him. And I had to think about that because moving meant leaving all my friends and this amazing group of fundraisers that I had gotten to know. I think the first thing I said when he asked me was, and work where? Because I would have to leave my job at the University of Toronto. So as much as this was something that I had wanted to hear, and it was such a sweet, amazing gesture and confirmation that he wanted us to be together, I found myself having to say no. It was a really difficult conversation. It definitely ended in tears, guys. But then, a week later, I found myself reconsidering. Why couldn't I move to Kitchener? I like it there. I'm sure I'd be able to find a job somewhere. I mean, fundraising's still fun. Oh my god, there's a giant bug. <laughs> B, you threw me off. <laughs> Laura will edit that out. Fundraising's still fundraising in another city, right? I could totally move there. So I promised him I would move. Not right away, but eventually. I felt really good about this decision. But then, slowly, I started to regret it. And this feeling worsened when I started looking at job postings for Kitchener-Waterloo. Sorry, Jessica. Yeah, Jessica's <laughs> been there. And the reality of what this move meant really started to set in. There just wasn't anything that piqued my interest the way that working at U of T had. I was getting used to a big shop, and the idea of transitioning to a smaller one was difficult to accept. And even though sometimes <laughs> the scale of U of T can be really overwhelming, I didn't feel that I was ready to, to transition to a smaller shop, and I didn't feel I was done learning. And besides, I had just stopped getting lost on campus. So I was forced to take a look at what I really wanted, at what my biggest priority was. And as much as I'd like to say my relationship was number one, I knew in my gut my career came first. My journey to arrival in fundraising was a long journey, which involved 
a year at Humber College for advertising copywriting. Did not work out. Then a brief career as a public sector consultant. Did not work out. And then I reluctantly went back to Humber for the fundraising management program. And it was there that I finally felt like I belonged. And when I got the job at U of T, I remember telling one of my friends, did I tell you I really like my new job? And that was the first time in such a long time that I've been able to say that. So after giving it a lot of thought, I had to tell my partner, no, again, that I couldn't move to Kitchener. I think I blurted it out when we were on a walk or something, which is always the best way to convey important life decisions. He understood. He's the best. But I couldn't go. I was really sorry and I felt bad, but I, I couldn't go. And immediately, I felt a weight lift off my shoulders. So then I found myself, instead of trying to make plans to move to another city, digging into the one I was in. I myself moved to a nicer apartment. I accepted a more senior job at work. And I took on more volunteer responsibilities with AFP and fully gave in to my committee problem. Thanks, Laura. <laughs> I'm involved with a mentorship program. And in my role as mentor, I'm often tasked with giving advice to newer fundraisers. And something I often emphasize is the importance of saying yes to opportunities. It's in saying yes that I got that more senior job at work. It's in saying yes that I took on more volunteer responsibilities with AFP. And it's saying yes that I'm on this stage tonight, which is something I had to be strongly convinced to do. But I also think there's a lot of benefit in saying no. It's okay to say no when something isn't right for you. And last year, moving to Kitchener wasn't right for me. I'm optimistic that one day Peter and I will be living in the same city, Toronto. <laughs> and those conversations I have with friends and acquaintances will be very different. Yes, he moved here. Oh yes, it's very nice. You know, when he lived in Kitchener, it was hard, but we made it through. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sam. Uh, so that should give you a little flavor of what you're in for tonight. It's never easy to be first, so that's why we made Sam do it. Um, and uh, to give you just a little preview of the rest of the evening, we're going to have three speakers come up. Then we're going to give you a 10-minute bio break, get a new drink, do what you need to do, and then we'll have the final three speakers. So uh, let's get started. So our first new speaker of the night is Matthew Dubbins. He's the Dubins, sorry. Uh, founder of Donor Science Consulting. You're the only one I didn't ask about the last name because I was so sure. Um, <laughs> Matthew insisted on going first this evening, uh, and he's here to share a story that I'm hoping will change how you interact with those around you and pause before making an assumption. Welcome, Matthew. professional career has been this microphone. <laughs> okay. Um, it, does that sound better? Oh, wow. Okay. 
paradox of my professional career has been that the source of my greatest strengths has also provided me with some of my biggest challenges. That source is called the autism spectrum, or more specifically in my case, Asperger's syndrome. There, I said it. <laughs> my ongoing dilemma has been how to survive professionally uh, despite these challenges. First, you might want to know what these labels mean and why it's been uh, such a uh, why it's been such a challenge for me. A definition that I got from Wikipedia might be of some service here. Asperger's syndrome is a, um, is a is a developmental disorder characterized by considerable difficulty in social interaction and nonverbal communication along with restricted and repetitive patterns of behavior and interests. It's a milder form of autism spectrum disorder where affected individuals have relatively normal language and intelligence. So that's all well and good, but what has this meant for me, however? In general, I've had problems staying motivated in any one job as time goes on, big problems taking uh, team members into consideration when uh, making decisions on the job. Also, uh, planning has been a bit of a challenge. A few stories might help illustrate my points. Um, story one takes place in my first job when I found myself landed in a somewhat managerial position. My job title had the word coordinator in it while the person working with me had the word assistant at first. Um, what this meant in practice uh, was that in addition to doing my own deliverables, I was also responsible for reviewing the work that the assistant did before releasing it to folks in the rest of the organization. To the detriment of my relationship with her, I did a lot of things wrong in working with this assistant. I was frequently impatient with her. I was often very nitpicky when reviewing her work, and I highly doubt I gave her much praise. <laughs> to put it bluntly, I screwed up. So much so that instead of staying in the same room as me, she eventually opted to sit and do her daily analytics work in a completely different part of the organization. I didn't realize it at the time how bad our relationship was. Uh, so believe me when I say that her sitting so far apart from me came as a very big surprise. Story two takes place in another one of my jobs when uh, I was working overtime on a Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, I was very stressed out by a roadblock uh, on a project that I was trying to finish. Uh, now, I didn't exactly need to finish that project on the weekend, uh, but the stress to make progress uh, on that project uh, was a bit overwhelming. Uh, it got to a point and I made a bad decision. Uh, I decided to call up my supervisor and ask for her help. Oh boy, so, Needless to say, she got extremely frustrated with me because I was intruding on the time that she was trying to spend with her family. Um, she very clearly explained to me how insensitive this was. You know, you would think I would have had the presence of mind to know not to do this in respect to her holiday time, but regrettably, I didn't. I think this always stuck with me it highlights that sometimes I get so caught up in what's going on in my own head that I don't stop to consider other people. I always appreciated how clear and explicit that supervisor was with me and I still think about her on and off to this day. Generally, I can very much understand uh, that when I've been characteristically inconsiderate of team members in past jobs of mine, that they felt ignored, 
very frustrated with me and at a loss for what to do. For those who worked with me in the past and are listening, please know that I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry for the trouble that I caused and please know that it's taken me a lot of courage uh, to come up here and talk about this. Uh, but my story isn't all doom and gloom. Uh, it does have a happy ending. In recent years, I've changed the way that I've looked at my limitations. Uh, before, I hate to admit that I kept trying to run away from them. Increasingly, I've been taking a long, hard, deep look at my limitations and working with instead of against them. Incre um, uh, yeah. uh, surprisingly, running my own business uh, has been a very big improvement for me. Thanks to the urgency of supporting my family through my own business development, motivation is not a problem. <laughs> I definitely don't get bored. <laughs> Paradoxically as well, uh, since I'm the owner of my own business relationships, those relationships have actually been going quite well. As an example of this, I'm currently engaged in doing a major gift prospect model uh, for a client out in charity. Uh, now, I'm not even done the contract yet, uh, but thanks to the quality of my relationship with them, as well as the conversations we've been having, I've already managed to secure a subsequent contract with them uh, where I'll be using Enveronics Wellscapes data to dive deeper into the estimated wealth of prospects in their database. <laughs> Big nerdy smile for you. <laughs> now, I know that life will still be challenging uh, because I don't understand other people so well, but thankfully things are better. My message to others is to stop running and instead take your limitations by the hand so that you can walk together into the future. Thank you. <laughs>
My name is Geraldine Nachirija Lutaya. I'm of the Ngonge clan in Uganda. I was born in Halifax. I grew up in Ottawa, and now I live here in Toronto. Truth number two, this, this event that we're having right here is happening on sacred land, on traditional territory of the Ishnabe and Haudenosaunee nations, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the New Credit. And as guests on this traditional territory, we are incredibly fortunate for the opportunity to do the work that we do here each and every single day. And for me, I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity that I have to share my story here on this land that is home to thousands of indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Truth number three, my story is actually not that unique, unfortunately. And I hope that in sharing my story this evening, we'll be able to create space and hold space for stories like these because it's incredibly important if we are ever going to make true, meaningful change. And so with that, I take you within the walls of a nonprofit organization, perhaps very much like yours. Passionate, committed individuals working tirelessly towards a mission, a vision, and a dream of something that we all believe in. And so I'll be honest, in the beginning, I didn't notice all the harassment and bullying that was going on around me. It was that subtle. But over time, there's only so many, so much exposure to verbal, nonverbal, and environmental slights that one can take. So in one particular staff meeting, I watched while one of my non-white colleagues was cut off and dismissed, not once, but twice, while trying to voice their opinion during a discussion. At first, I thought to myself, am I missing the point? Am I misinterpreting the situation and what's going on here? And it was clear to everyone in the room that this was not the first time that this type of incident had taken place. And it was also very apparent to everyone in the room that the treatment my non-white colleague had received was ungracious. And so again, I said to myself, am I missing something? Is this a joke? Am I crazy? And also, how come my boss didn't say anything? So to speak up and do the right thing seems obvious, but for me, I'm incredibly mindful of the stereotypes that come with being a black woman, especially in a sector where close to 90% of nonprofit employees in Canada are white. So to speak up and do the right thing is actually harder for me. And on a day-to-day -day basis, I am faced with the struggle of whether to share my thoughts and, and experiences because I run the risk of being deemed intimidating or aggressive, or even angry, among many other things. But in this particular situation, this was a risk that I was willing to take. And so my fear became courage in that moment, and unapologetically so. So I decided to go forward and speak with my boss. And when we met privately, I expressed my concerns over what had happened in that staff meeting. I expressed my concerns about the treatment of, my, of certain non-white colleagues. And I expressed my concern about what was becoming an increasingly toxic work environment and asked my boss if, he could, if they could explore options on how to set us forward on a corrective course. So that all seemed straightforward and simple. And my boss was even in agreement of the need to do something to make this change and that what had happened in that, in that staff meeting was amiss. But what my boss also said was that now was not a good time to deal with that situation. <laughs> and so I thought, oh my gosh, whoa. <laughs> maybe I should, you know, jokingly, maybe I should have sent a calendar invite, you know, <laughs> like, is there somewhere in our handbook that says like there's only a certain period of time where we should be talking about these types of topics? You know, like does, looking at our calendars, does next Thursday work for you? You know, between 10 and 11, like I can set that up. Just let me know, just let me know. 
Obviously, I'm joking. That, that didn't happen. There was no calendar invite sent. Um, there was no second conversation, unfortunately. My colleague who displayed this inappropriate behavior was never spoken to, and my non-white colleague never received an apology for how they were treated. So, the response that we received from our boss was an indication, a very strong one, that this type of behavior was tolerable and permissible in the workplace. And that was, that was very troubling. Um, but even despite that, I decided to speak out and speak up, up until my very last day at that organization. And I know that I'm better for it. But reflecting on that, I know that my story is not unique, as I said at the beginning. I've spoken to a handful of individuals who share similar stories like mine, right here in Toronto, right here in the nonprofit sector, and, and even more so in the fundraising profession. And so it causes me to reflect and ask the question, is this what we want to be known for? Is this what we want to stand for? Do we want this to be our legacy? Or do we really want to move towards change? Because the fact of the matter is, if we don't start making space for these types of stories, if we don't start acknowledging these truths and bringing them into light, we're not going to make the change that we strive so hard to do each and every single day for the people that we serve. So if there's one thing that I hope you take away from my story this evening, it's that if you see something, say something. Because being a silent bystander does not help the problem. In fact, it only makes it worse. And I've been thinking a lot about a quote by an incredible woman named Rosemary Brown. She was the first black woman to be elected into political office here in Canada. And she said, until all of us have made it, none of us have made it. And I just really hope that those are words that someday become true. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. Uh, so some heavy stuff tonight, guys. Um, <laughs> yeah, until now. Um, I'm just going to give the, the judges a minute to get caught up scoring and uh, tell you a little dilemma that Sam and I face this week while they do that. Um, so Sam and I were very, very lucky and were able to speak at Ottawa Fundraising Day this week, um, or this past week, and it was fun. No, that's... No, I'm not bragging. Um, it was great, great conference. Uh, and so we were flying home from Ottawa Friday morning, get to the airport dutifully at uh, 8.45 in the morning. We're ready, we're there, we're checked in, we're on the plane, plane takes off. Plane goes to Toronto, we circle both airports, and then we flew back to Ottawa. <laughs> Two and a half hours just on the plane. So then we get to Ottawa, and all credit to the Porter stewards, uh, they were amazing. Um, we get off the plane, thank goodness we were not trapped on a plane because there was one gentleman who would have caused an issue. He was, he was angry the second they turned the plane around. You know that guy whose like, leg is shaking? So I was glad to be away from him. Um, so we sat in the airport for three hours and stared at each other and tried to figure it out. And our dilemma was, do we just drive home? So we sat there for three hours with that dilemma. And then they canceled the flight. So now we're staring at each other. And I, I can't think. I can't breathe. I'm exhausted. And, you know, I've already flown two and a half hours that day. We were up early, blah, blah, blah. So I text my husband. And for those of you who know my husband, he is a very serious gentleman. So I, t I tell him, and this, he probably was so glad to get this text. It's the first time ever in our marriage. I said, tell me what to do. And so he, um, and I often tell hashtag don't tell Phil stories, so this is a Phil's the hero story. Um, he actually called the car rental place, booked a car, and by the time I had my ticket refund and was at the car counter, there was keys waiting for me. But now, I know, right? Once in a while, he really comes through. Um, <laughs> and uh, so Sam and I get in our, what was it, like Camry or something? And... Uh, 
Oh, thank you. <laughs> Nissan Altima. I know. Yeah, he upgraded us um, and drove for four hours. And then two blocks from Sam's house, a tree's down and I can't get to her house and I'm just like shaking. And so then I had another dilemma. Do I just tell Sam our friendship is over <laughs> and throw her out of the car or do I drive her home? So I drove her home. She obviously is here tonight. Um, and the end of that story is I pulled up to our drive, our garage is quite a tight park. So I had called Phil and told him to come outside to meet me so he could park the car. And uh, I literally just fell out of the car onto the, the ground and said, help me. Uh, if anybody's seen uh, Bridesmaids where Kristen Wiig is in first class and she's high on the pills and she's like, help me, it was that. Um, so yes, that was my dilemma this week, a bit, uh, a bit lighter than the other ones. So one more speaker before our great break um, and I am delighted to introduce her. So our next sp speaker this evening is Melanie Cote. Melanie works with me at Blakely, full disclosure, uh, where she is the Associate Creative Director. Uh, more importantly, uh, Melanie is a proud mother of two, blogger, activist, and writer of great things. Uh, I'm so glad to know her and work with her, and I'm excited she's going to share her story with you tonight. So welcome, Melanie. Okay, so at some point, as you've heard from our stories, we've all been there. We've been standing on the field of life beside a fence. There's grass under our feet, and there's grass on the other side. The grass over there looks pretty green, but is it? This is green. Is it just a trick of the light? They're both pretty green. That's where I was about a year and a half ago. I had been in my career for about 20 years. I had the respect of my colleagues. I had awards under my belt, I had an exceptional reputation and a ton of experience. Still, I felt that the work I was doing in my nine to five job wasn't nearly as fulfilling as the work I was doing in my five to nine job. And by nine to five, I mean like seven to seven. And by five to nine job, I mean the volunteering I was doing for a national parent volunteer run charity that you have never heard of. Still, I had been someone who had defined myself by my career since about the day after I started in advertising. I loved it, I was good at it, and I knew that advertising was a fickle friend. If I was to go over that fence, I couldn't get back. But ever since my daughter was born with a disability, I knew that I wanted to do work that had meaning that could help people, like the volunteering I was doing, instead of selling people with no money things they don't need. Right? I really wanted to work in fundraising. Now, I had learned that fundraising was kind of hard to get into. And if I was to make the leap over the fence, I would be starting from scratch. All of that reputation, all of that goodwill, that experience, that award glory would be meaningless. I would be a stranger in a strange land, forever the for-profit person in the room. Was I willing to throw everything I had accomplished away for the chance to wiggle into a new situation where I would be starting from scratch and had to learn everything all over again? Should I stay or should I go? I was torn. One day I would tell myself, forget starting over. Just concentrate at the job at hand and get the work done. And the next day, I was back on LinkedIn, scrolling through job listings, looking for a job in fundraising that didn't require you to have a job in fundraising. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine how many of those there were. I was ready to suck it up and give up until this one day, this one day in March. Now, this was a typical day in advertising. It was a Saturday, and I was in a boardroom with a bunch of my colleagues, all male, Again, typical day in advertising, and we were trying to solve a very important creative problem. <laughs> we needed to sell more maple leaf shaped hamburgers to moms for Canada's 150. <laughs> this was a work on a Saturday in a boardroom kind of problem. Now, 
We were going around in circles. It had been going on for hours. And I had my laptop open so I could watch what was going on in the outside world. And one of my colleagues said, you know, it is so great that we have so many amazing solutions for working moms. I mean, I know that she doesn't get to eat with her kids because she's, you know, working and whatever. But there are just so many ways for us to make things work in this day and age. And I said, you know, I think if we want to create something that really resonates with these women, that we should acknowledge the guilt she feels over the time that she doesn't spend with her family before we offer her solutions, like maple leaf-shaped hamburgers. <laughs> and he said, Melanie, I disagree. There's no guilt. That's not the way things are anymore. And I said, um, I, I really think we need to validate how women feel before we go ahead and offer them solutions in this way. And he said, I'm sorry, Melanie, but I have to disagree. That is just not how women feel. And, and I was, there are people who know me, and I'm trying to keep my cool, yeah. But through gritted teeth with my voice rising, I said, you know, I actually am a woman <laughs> and a mom who is going to stop and buy groceries on my way home from working on a Saturday with a bunch of dudes who are trying to tell me how women who work feel about buying groceries. And I turn my laptop around and say, while about a million women are marching on Washington! Let's all calm down, he said. Right? Calm down. You're trying to mansplain to me how women who work feel about buying groceries? And just let me add, no one in the history of the world has ever calmed down by being told to calm down. <laughs> I need to make some tea, I said, and I slammed the laptop shut. And you know, it's funny, the walk to the kitchen was very short. But in that moment, it felt like a mile, because I knew at that moment, that thing that had held my heart so dearly for 20 years, I couldn't do it anymore. I knew that I could take everything I had learned, all of that experience, all of that knowledge, and I could use those powers for good. And I could do something with meaning instead of this. Evil. <laughs> and as luck would have it, one of my former colleagues from the for-profit side called me up and said, hey, we need someone with just your experience to come and join the Blakely team about two weeks later. And I have been there ever since. Now I will admit that I have said, well, I know I'm not a fundraiser, but about a thousand times since I've started. And I definitely get introduced as from the for-profit side, but I am holding out hope that sometime in the next 10 years or so, I will be considered a full-fledged fundraiser, too. And I also know that most work dilemmas are not defined by anything as climactic as the Saturday morning mom guilt mansplained pink hat showdown. But I think all of us face at least one should I stay or should I go moment in our career. When we're thinking about going through an unfamiliar door, knowing that doing so will mean a door closes behind us. Here's what I think. Both of those options have challenges. Pick the one that challenges you to learn and grow. Both of them have merits. Pick the one that's most rewarding, not the one that, that's most rewarded. And finally, if that doesn't work, maybe just sit down with a maple leaf-shaped hamburger <laughs> and see if the answer comes to you.
What a great way to end the first half. So it is currently 7.10, so I'll see you back in 12 minutes. Speaker this evening is Becky Fowles. Becky is the gift and estate planning assistant at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center um, and a Humber grad, which is, you know, gotta say it. Um, she is an avid canoeer. Ask her about her trip to Alaska and is also a dabbler in improv comedy, currently studying at Second City. So welcome, Becky. In high school, my drama teacher asked me, Becky, what do you want to be when you grow up? I really didn't know the answer to the question, but I wanted to impress him because the audition for Jesus Christ Superstar was coming up, and I really wanted to play Mary. So I said, um, I want to be a lawyer. And he said to me, Becky, you do not want to be a lawyer. You want to play a lawyer. So like pretty harsh. Um, but it turns out Mr. Doomshaw was onto something. And it took a decade and a pretty painful dilemma for me to learn what that was. So I did go to law school, but spoiler alert, I did not become a lawyer. I chose instead to become a fundraiser. And people often ask me why I made that choice and what led to the change. And before I tell my story, I want to acknowledge how privileged I've been in my education to pursue law and my dreams. And I don't want to seem ungrateful for any opportunity I've had. But this is really a personal journey about learning how to choose authenticity over appearances and a sense of wellness over expectations. My dilemma begins in May 2014. I was in my second year of law school at Dalhousie University. I had good grades and I secured a summer position at a Bay Street law firm. I thought that this was what I wanted and what was expected of me. I went to meetings and wore business suits and shook hands and took so many unnecessary business cards. I even pretended to know what securities were and then ran home to Google it. I really went all in. But beneath this polished veneer, uh, things were not so great. The previous fall, I began to experience panic attacks and general anxiety that I couldn't explain. I was nervous and agitated, and I kept doubting my abilities, even though there was no reason for me to do so. And really, I just felt scared all of the time. But I thought this was what I signed up for. This was part of the package. I had to suck it up and soldier on. By April, I had really isolated myself from my friends and my family. I found that pretending to be okay was actually a lot harder than being alone. And then I couldn't really pretend anymore. I wrote my final exam and I walked out absolutely convinced I had failed. I started panicking and I kept reliving the exam over and over again in my head and I felt physically sick and, and dread for weeks. Later, I found out I passed the exam with an A minus, but it didn't do much to quell the anxiety. It made me realize that, you know what, something's wrong. There's such a disconnect, such a dissonance between how I feel and reality, and a good grade or a corporate job wasn't really gonna change that. Maybe it was the environment, maybe it wasn't good for me, and maybe I needed to make a change. But I was really scared, and I felt really guilty I thought about staying and it seemed unbearable. And then I thought about leaving and that too was unbearable. I wish I could say my decision to leave was decisive and strong, but it wasn't. It was messy and it was confusing and it was complicated. I reached out honestly to my support network, my parents, my professors. I don't know why in our darkest moments our self-narratives tend to be so cruel, but Letting others into my dilemma also let in some light, and they gave me perspective when I didn't have any. And honestly, there's nothing more comforting than a friend or a loved one telling you, it's gonna be okay. And it was, eventually. Logistically, leaving was actually fairly simple. I told the law school they were supportive, and the law firm was as well. But emotionally, it was a lot more complicated. 
I watched through my Facebook newsfeed as my classmates and friends graduated while I worked a minimum wage job I had done in high school. I was so confused. What had I done wrong? I thought I was such a failure, but now I know it just needed a bit of a time out to stop and redefine what success really meant for me. And I still had shame and a lot of sadness, but I learned to live with it, and then I learned to move past it. And I also became a different person. I was less intense and less of a perfectionist. I wasn't as judgmental, and I was more empathetic. I was grateful for things I had previously overlooked and just cared a lot less about what others thought. And I began to really rethink my career. I wanted to do something with purpose that was bigger than me. And I began my path to fundraising, really as any fundraiser would, through extreme and relentless networking. <laughs> I reached out to anyone who would talk to me about their job, teachers, nurses, writers, friends of friends and friends of family. And through this process, I met Jennifer Williams, the Director of Advancement at the University of Toronto Faculty of Nursing. Jen was instrumental, and she let me volunteer in her office one day a week, and she recommended the Humber program for me. So I enrolled in Humber Fundraising Management Program, but I still had trepidation. I was worried my anxiety would return. But the year at Humber further rebuilt my sense of self and a sense of purpose. I met incredible friends and was exposed to the amazing fundraising world. I also met another mentor in Denny Young, uh, program the program coordinator and professor at the school. And his wit and humor and personality always made me feel like I was in the right place at the right time. And I know he's a judge tonight, so Denny, if you want to add 300 points to my score, please feel free. It was also through the fundraising program, the mentorship program created by Sam Barr and Laura Champion, that I met Tammy Garcia, the director of gift and estate planning at the Sunnybrook Foundation. We first met for coffee in December 2016, and she brought me homemade caramel corn. It was delicious. And I had a feeling that we were going to get along really well, and we did. I began volunteering for her, and I love plan giving because of its semi-legal aspects. And it turns out I'm one of 10 people in the world that actually love estate administration. <laughs> so, but the volunteering turned to an internship, and the internship a job. And next month, I will have been at the foundation a year. And I couldn't be more happy. I feel so fortunate to work for someone who I admire and who I learn from every day and who makes caramel corn during the holiday season. <laughs> I'm so proud to work at Sunnybrook. The things I see at the hospital are incredible. They're really inventing the future of healthcare. And it's so fulfilling to know that our work at the foundation goes towards supporting research and clinical care that alleviates a patient's suffering or maybe gives them some more time with their families. As fundraisers, we get to see the very best in humanity. We harness generosity and we foster a precious aspect of the human spirit. While many of us didn't have a direct path here, I know we feel fortunate to do the work that we do. So once in a while, someone will ask me about law school. Why did you leave, or why don't you just go back? Fair questions, but they don't know my story or how I felt facing my dilemma. And you know, I don't know how the other option would have turned out, or if this one is exactly right, but for me, being able to speak to you tonight about a job I love and the people who helped me get here makes me feel kind of confident it was the right one. So, Doomshaw, totally right. Only wanted to play a lawyer. But I had to face it for myself. I had to face that dilemma and learn who I truly wanted to be. Thank you so much. So what you all need to know is just how nervous Becky was leading up to this. <laughs> there were a lot of phone calls between Becky and Sam and emails and worries. And I think, uh, you know, for having never spoken, having never done it, congratulations. That was <laughs> so good. Uh, highlighting, though, that uh, Sam and I also run a mentorship program brings up the general dilemma that my boss, who is also in the room, will uh, attest to, um, is my dilemma to not join a committee on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> it's now reached the point where I am required to send her an email where the opportunity is offered, where I write, 
I, I didn't volunteer for this. And then I send it to her, and then I get the thumbs up back. So I have a real problem. Our final speaker this evening, guys. Can you believe it? We're there already. Mo, I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name. Waja. It's Mo Waja. Uh, he does the social media and digital marketing at Camp Uchigeus, among a million other social media-based things. Mo is not a stranger to speaking, but is the living embodiment of the problem I mentioned earlier. Despite his speaking experience, he was having a hard time breaking through into the AFP speaking circuit. He was an attendee and a huge supporter of season two, and tonight he's closing our show. So really, you all could be up here at the next event. So welcome, Mo. Thank you. Well, it's all about the story. At least as marketers, that's what we like to believe. And in the for-profit world, especially in, in social media, sometimes it really is that simple. You get your photos, you get your videos, you wrap it in a bit of messaging, and now you have the most compelling narrative possible. And you put it out there into the world. But as we know, in the nonprofit world, it's rarely quite that simple. It's rarely quite that simple because there's a balance that we need to strike between the need to find the most compelling marketing content possible and the need to respect the experiences and the journeys of the people that we serve, the people whose story we tell. Good marketing in a nonprofit world isn't just telling a good story, it's telling your best story. And that means striking that balance. And that becomes even more complicated the moment you start working with a vulnerable population. For myself, the people whose story I tell, they're kids. They're kids going through one of the most difficult, challenging, trying experiences that we can possibly imagine. They're kids affected by childhood cancer. Now, I started at Ooch in August, and it was a fairly busy time. Summer programming at Ooch Muskoka, our north facility, was winding down, and we had a full week of our day camp in downtown Toronto. Now, day camp at Ooch for the full week means that kids are coming to our downtown Toronto facilities to experience all the friendship and fun and the magic of Ooch programming. And for me, this was my first time getting to see that magic firsthand. And it was amazing. It's an indescribable feeling knowing what these kids are going through, but watching them play with, with those smiles and that joy and that laughter all over their faces, whether they're, they're building pottery or they're climbing a rock wall or they're going through their personally curated mystery room. It, it, it's something that really defies description, that I couldn't even imagine experiencing until I got there, until I was in that room. And it was amazing. And I was excited because right here was the story. This was the magic of Ooch. This was giving kids with cancer the chance to just be kids in action, something I'd heard about, read about, learned about, prepped for the job interview with, but I hadn't gotten the chance to actually witness. I tell you this so you, so you kind of understand my mindset, my perspective, where my head was at. When I, when I rushed upstairs, grabbed my, grabbed my ooch braid, grabbed my phone and made my way back down, ready to take as many photos and videos as possible and show them to the world because this was the story and I wanted to put it out there everywhere in as many places as possible. And with that, I wanted to use all of the marketing knowledge and experience and skills that I'd built up before coming to Ooch. And that meant tapping into the immediacy that is so prevalent in today's marketing world, a world full of Snapchat and Instagram stories, and previously, Vines. <laughs> previously. <laughs> and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted that immediacy, because my theory was with that immediacy, we can show donors right there, this is what your generosity has made possible. We can show volunteers, here is what your time does, here's what it creates. We can show parents, parents who might not be able to be there. We can give them a window into part of their kids' experience, the laughter, the friendship, and fun that they would only be able to hear about later. We can give them that window. But that need for immediacy was what began creating a challenge. 
But you see, it comes back to that balance, the balance between getting the most compelling marketing content possible and respecting the experiences and the journey of the people whose story you're telling. And that respect is the foundation of the OOCH approval process, a process by which photos and videos captured are taken and sent to program managers who review and decide which photos and videos are right for distribution. Because see, while every OOCH family comes in and signs a, a release allowing their kids to be photographed, to be on video, that's not enough. The next step is ensuring that when we send out those photos, when we send out those videos, it's fully cognizant of the of changes that have happened in that family's lives. And so that's where the process comes from. And so when we send the photos through that, it takes time, as it should, because those managers are looking for all of the changes that could have happened that might preclude those children, those kids, those families from being part of a public marketing campaign. So here you see, or you begin to see, the challenge, the dilemma. Is it even possible, should we even try to compress such a process into something that allows the immediacy to post something online? Should we even try this? Because in that moment, there's a conflict of interest. There's the need to put out as much content as possible, to market your brand as much as possible, and there's the care, the caution, that comes along with ensuring that every part of Ooch gives our camper families the best possible experience. And this was a discussion. This was a discussion that went back and forth. And the thing was that when I think back to that dilemma, I realized that in that moment, it felt like this, this singular instance, this thing that we were going to decide once, and then it was going to be done, and then it was going to be over. We would just be, be doing this now. But the reality is that that dilemma was a mirror held up to every single time someone in marketing makes a decision to put something out online. Because in a way, we really are the last line. Looking at those images, looking at those videos, and making the decision, is this the right thing to do in that moment? And sometimes that really can be challenging. Sometimes you have that moment where your finger hovers over the button on your, on your phone or on your computer, and, and, and you try to think of every possible ramification of putting this out into the world, into the internet. Now, I'm happy to say that in this case, in that dilemma, we had a happy ending. Because we did take the leap. We made the decision to sit down, work together, and find a way to choose the right images, the right videos to put out into the world. And in the end, while I won't bore you with the metrics, I will say that our success is measured in every happy expression and every message expressing joy from all of these supporters, the family members, and the friends, and the parents of Ooch. Because at the end of the day, it really is about finding that balance. And when we struck that balance there, what we were really trying to do is find a way to tell the story that showcases our families in the best way possible. Thank you. Thank you, Mo. So those are all our speakers. But uh, before I let you go and uh, have another drink and socialize, there's a few people to thank uh, for making this night happen. Um, so first, I'm going to introduce you to the committee that made this happen. Um, Jess Warbleski from uh, YW Kitchener-Waterloo. She keeps us organized and on track. Eunice Karayuki from the Dorothy Lay Hospice, our experts liaison and score master. Samantha Barr, who you saw earlier and whose title I won't read again. She is our speaker, speaker coach. And finally, Scott Jeffries, the senior manager uh, for List and Data Services at Stephen Thomas. He works on our marketing and communications. Um, I, I couldn't do it without these guys. This is the reason this event happened. So thanks, guys. You're the best. A few other people to quickly thank. So Cynthia and the, uh, her brand new staff members who I gave a crash course on this event. So thank you, Jacqueline and Stacy. Um, 
Uh, thank you to our scorekeepers, uh, uh, Denny, Juniper, Andrea. I think you know how grateful I am to have you here every time. And thank you for returning. And thank you for really contributing. Uh, thank you to the Gladstone for having us. Great venue. Um, one quick thing uh, that I would be remiss not to mention, um, fundraising day uh, is uh, June the 12th, and the early bird uh, pricing has been extended through May 14th, so if you haven't got your ticket yet, please go. They've changed a lot about the formatting this year for the better, I think, that's my vote, and uh, there's a lot of really interesting deep dive sessions, so I, I really encourage you to go. It'll be a fun and uh, youthful event, is the word I will use. Um, and thank you all for being here. Um, please spread the word of what you thought of the event, good, bad, ugly. Use the hashtag, listen to the podcast, share the podcast when it comes out. Um, and normally at this moment, I would announce the next date of the Speaker Discovery Series. We don't have a date, but for those of you in the audience thinking about applying, we do have a theme. So the theme for the next event will be love. And so get thinking on your stories on love, uh, and it will be in the fall of this year. We're just nailing down a date. Um, so please look for that when it comes out. Um, we have the room for a while, so please have another drink, uh, hang out with friends, and uh, enjoy the evening. Thanks for coming. Living might mean taking chances, but they're worth taking. Loving might be a mistake. Our final speaker this evening, guys. Can you believe it? We're there already. Mo, I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name. Waja. Waja. <laughs>